We want to know how can spirituality transform our social movements and how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. And welcome to The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. I'm your host, Rebecca Burnt. And I'm Chelsea McMillan. And we're spiritual directors exploring the intersection between spirituality and activism. Today's episode is actually being released on Halloween. Uh, last week, we talked about ghosts and, well, we talked about healing through the ancestors. <laughs> I don't know how much we actually talked about real live ghosts. Um, but today, we're talking to a real live witch, which is pretty perfect since it's Halloween and Samhain and uh, All Hallows' Eve. And it's that uh, time when the veil is thinnest between the worlds. Um, Rebecca, last week you mentioned your evangelical background and how you celebrated Halloween back then. Um, I'm curious, what did you think about witches growing up? Okay, so obviously witches were evil. They worship <laughs> Satan. Um, I do. I do remember. My mom didn't even really like it if we watched like cartoons mm. or anything with witches in them. Like there were some things that were okay, like Disney cartoons we were allowed to watch, and like The Wizard of Oz. But like I wasn't allowed to watch the Smurfs because Gargamel was a, like a wizard mm. and he was evil. <laughs> um, you know, my sense of it growing up was that it was something that was very make-believe or whatever. Um, I didn't necessarily know about Wicca or modern paganism. I didn't really understand that. But um, I did have a sense that, like, whatever witches were at some point in history, that they were bad and that they were evil. And I remember when I would get in trouble a lot of times, which was very frequent, my mother used to say to me, uh, she would quote somewhere in the Bible, I'm not sure where it says this, but she would say, the Bible says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> and so as I became a little bit older, I did start to understand that there were people who called themselves witches. And I generally kind of conflated them with Satanists. And I thought that mm -hmm. they were um, they were somehow worshiping the devil. Um, as I got older, I began to come into contact with like modern pagans, people who are Wiccan and things like that. And then, of course, now... I do things like, you know, that might be termed a cult. I, I engage in some of that stuff. You know, I, I read tarot. I do psychic readings and things like that. Um, and it's been interesting for me to, to connect with people who are still in a more conservative uh, sort of religious milieu where they're like, um, I get some, even sometimes people who I think are more progressive, like get a little weirded out by it sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember somebody recently saying to me like, well, you know, you have to be really careful. You can go to some really dark places, you know, with, with tarot. And I, and I was just like, tarot is just about like looking at our own shadow. Yeah. Like, like that's all it is. And our guest today is going to get into this a little bit more. But it's not about um, showing you anything that, that isn't already there. Mm -hmm. and, and we have to learn to sort of um, embrace the darkness. Like that's what. Yeah. Why you know, are we so afraid of the dark anyway? Why are we so afraid of it? Right. Like I, well, I get why people are afraid of it. Because, I mean, look, there there are some scary things in the world. There are some. Like there is real evil. Like I'm not going to yeah. deny that. Like I, I don't think you can you can look at um, some of the things that have happened from rape and child abuse to like genocide and, and say that there's not real evil in the world. Um, but to me, that's why it's such an important part of the spiritual path to sort of like look at our own darkness mm -hmm. and look at the look at the places within us that that scare us um, so that that they don't drive us unconsciously mm -hmm. so that we can make them conscious and we can, and to me, anything that I experience as scary or dark that is a part of me, once I start to like really bring it into the light and understand it, I see that it's just something I've rejected that actually has a place within me. Absolutely. And that when it's channeled consciously, doesn't have to come out in a destructive way. It can actually be constructive. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, um, hopefully we'll have a, a an entire episode about the shadow because I think shadow yeah. work is so important. And yeah, the things that we deny are the things that come up to bite us later on. You know, yes. I uh, where I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, it's a super conservative place. I think it's 
it has more churches per square mile than anywhere else in the entire country or something like that. Like some ridiculous, like it's up there in some, <laughs> some, some sort of like evangelical statistic, you know? And so that's what I grew up in. But, um, also in that County is, um, a little town called Manitou Springs. And, uh, it has the highest, uh, percentage of Wiccans in the country. And so mm-hmm. I, I just always thought that was such a funny juxtaposition to like have this town, uh, full of evangelicals and, you know, lots of churches and, and, you know, we had, um, the big new life church with, uh, pastor Ted Haggard, uh, oh, you know, yeah. yes. um, and then to have sort of this, like, I don't know if it's a reaction, but like to have that little backlash of like people who are <laughs> working with different energies and, and, uh, you know, just right up alongside the the evangelicals, you know? Yeah. What about you? What, did, what was your perception of, or of witches? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I, did, I mean, I didn't really have any concept. I knew witches, ba- witches were bad, but all I had in my head were like pointy black hats and broomsticks, um, and like mm-hmm. warts, <laughs> you know? And, and of course now I, um, have come to understand that sort of crone image is like a wise old woman, you know? Um, yeah. and, and I've certainly, who doesn't have to be beautiful in right. the patriarchy yeah. in order yeah. to be powerful, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. doesn't have to conform to the patriarchy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've spent a lot of time in more sort of, um, like new agey communities where, you know, like nothing, no tradition is really being named or like, there's sort of like a, a bunch of traditions being mixed together. And, and so I've definitely been in a lot of ceremonies, um, that would like call in the, call in the directions and use, um, different objects that symbolize the different elements. And, you know, we'd make an altar in the middle of a circle and everything's done in a circle, you know, and you open the circle and you close the circle. And it wasn't until like, I think it was not even a year ago, I took a sort of Wicca 101 class and realized that a lot of these practices I had engaged in were influenced by Wicca and, and, um, which is itself sort of like a, a combination of like different indigenous practices, um, you know, mostly from Europe. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that's kind of my experience that I was like, oh, wow, I've been doing this without even knowing. And, and even like, you know, doing like affirmational practices or, or like different rituals to sort of like, um, you know, manifest something that I'm desiring has some inflections of that, I think. So, oh, yeah. um, so I'm curious because um, and really excited to talk to Amanda today because she uh, will talk to us a lot about like using like the power of the imagination and and yeah. and being in relationship with all these elements and the resources that we have around us and um, and how that can contribute not only to our personal transformation, but to social transformation. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm excited, too. And here's our interview with Amanda. Today's guest is Amanda Yates Garcia, also known as the Oracle of Los Angeles. Amanda is a witch on a mission to re-enchant the world through the power of art and magic. She was raised in a magical family whose forebears include the famed psychic Edgar Cayce and learned to cast spells and read tarot from a young age. Her work draws on the Western Hermetic mystery traditions, embodied energy work such as Reiki and holotropic breathwork, shamanic healing practices, and more. Amanda also has an MFA in writing and critical theory and film and video from the California Institute for the Arts. Amanda has organized public rituals to exercise capitalism, devour patriarchy, and bind Trump, runs a monthly mystery school called Magical Praxis, and hosts a radio show called The Oracle Hour. She recently made a splash after being interviewed by Tucker Carlson of Fox News about her participation in the binding Trump movement. In the interview, Amanda provides a grounded, practical explanation of magic and ritual and a clear-eyed, heart-centered intention to use her powers to create a better world that cuts through the cynicism and fear of the interviewer. Welcome, Amanda. Yay, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We're excited to have you too. And we'd love for you to just start off. Can you tell us a little bit about your own story? Um, What was it like growing up in a magical household And, and maybe what brought you to activism? Well, so growing up in a magical household was great in a lot of ways. I mean, 
my mother is a witch and she introduced me to mythology at a very early age and goddess worship and earth-centered spirituality and she gave me texts by Gloria Steinem or Starhawk, who's kind of one of the founding members of the reclaiming tradition of, of witchcraft. And, you know, I learned tarot and runes and things like that when, when I was like 12 and had initiations through her. And we come from sort of a tradition, a line of, of very witchy women. Uh, she's also an amazing my mother is also an amazing herbalist and extremely compassionate and erudite, and I'm very grateful for her leadership and guidance in my childhood. You know, but simultaneously, I think that a lot of times people have an idea of what it might be like to grow up as a witch that is all, you know, the sort of fantasy version, and there are also you know, it was also ordinary. Like I grew up in a, a suburb uh, in Southern California. And although my mom is a witch and very powerful and absolutely a feminist, you know, she also simultaneously still had the ordinary problems that most women do, particularly women of her generation, you know, second wave feminism. You know, she, she her family life as a child was extremely abusive and she had to deal with a lot of the problems related to patriarchal culture, you know, as she was when she was a young woman, and they very much informed her and her worldview. And so, even though we are witches, we still have to deal with the repercussions of capitalism and patriarchy and class and all the things that everybody else is dealing with too. So. So I was kind of born into a complex milieu as far as all of that stuff is concerned. Um, as far as activism is concerned, like my mother is an activist and was an activist. And she, for instance, like took me to, I remember at Diablo Canyon, which is a nuclear facility on the central coast uh, where the Starhawk and the other members of Reclaiming did a lot of work there to to try and stop the growth of, of nuclear technologies or at least nuclear facilities on a fault line in California. So I remember being there and holding ceremony and doing things like that when I was like, you know, five or six with her. But But I didn't really become an activist until much later, in fact, till very recently. I, I was really focused on my practice as an artist, and I think initially I kind of turned away from the world and was really just kind of disgusted with the things that I saw going on around me and the destruction of the environment, the you know blatant racism and sexism and oppression. Like I just didn't want to deal with that, really, as a young woman. And so instead I kind of turned away and focused instead on my art practice. But then after grad school, I feel like I started to come into a more mature position or frame of mind in regards to all of that stuff and started to recognize my own agency and also to work against the romantic notion of turning away from the industrial world and instead I decided I wanted to work to bring the enchantment of the sort of fairy realms of the mythological realms of the magical realms of the witch back into our world the one that we're all living in and the one that we all share uh, to re-enchant the world essentially I felt like that was sort of my duty and my mission instead of turning away and running away because I see the problems that we're facing right now as a culture as being so grave, you know, really being such a great existential threat, not only to us human beings, but to all life on earth and um, bound up in so much suffering that I don't think that we can really afford to turn away anymore, even though I certainly did want to and did for a really long time. And I'm only now still just learning how to, how to participate and a lot of what I learn is really through horizontal leadership. You know, I I think that's really essential as far as both my own practice as a as a witch and a healer and as an activist and as a person. You know, I learn a lot from the people I work with and the people in my community. And I, I feel like it's really important to sort of destabilize that sort of hierarchical power structure where we sort of think as 
certain people as leaders and everybody else as followers. I feel like really for a witch, it's really important to recognize that I am a leader and you are a leader and we are all leaders and we're all learning from each other. And so I feel like I had taken on a leadership role, but part of that role is to help everyone recognize their own capacity for leadership and and agency. So yeah, I mean, in, in witchcraft, there's a saying that all, you know, all witches are priestesses. Like everyone participates in leadership in witchcraft. It, there's not just leaders and followers or sort of powerful people and, and the, their flock or their sheep. We're all sheep. We're all wolves. We're all shepherds. <laughs> I love that. I love that we're all priestesses and, and that we all have that leadership. I'm wondering if you can tell us more about what do you mean, maybe for people who don't know as they're listening, what do you mean when you call yourself a witch or when you talk about witchcraft? Because I, I remember recently talking to somebody and they just had such a visceral, visceral reaction to the word writ, witch. They were oh, like, they oh, did? witches are like, yeah, it was really interesting. It was really interesting. What'd they say? Um, it was, they were like, witches, those are not. Those are not good people. We need to, you have to stay away from witches. I mean, this is someone coming from a much more traditionally religious context. But, um, and then there's other people who just, they just think it's just like Renaissance fair role playing totally. or something. Yeah, like, totally. You know? <laughs> um, so just for maybe people who aren't super familiar with that, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about it. Well, so witchcraft is, I mean, in, in some senses we might say it, we could sort of equivocate witchcraft with Christianity and saying, well, what is a Christian? I mean, it's kind of a complicated question, right? Because there's many different ways of viewing it. And yeah. I am not the sole authority. In fact, if I were to say anything about it, I would say that, you know, witchcraft is an anarchistic practice that is about recognizing one's own personal authority in connection with others as far as like spirituality is concerned. Um, so there's no like primary doctrine of witchcraft. There's no Bible of witchcraft. There's no Pope of witchcraft. Um, as far as like, well, what is it then? I mean, a witch is someone who practices witchcraft. It's a, it's a practice, not a belief system. So if you're practicing spells and doing incantations and calling in the gods and calling in the goddesses and calling in the spirits, and you're doing that labor, you're doing that work, you're behaving in that way, then you are practicing witchcraft. And therefore, in my opinion, you are a witch. Now, other people might say that you would have to be initiated into witchcraft or that you would have to be a hereditary witch. And I mean, that's, I could debate that all day long. But I also think like no one gets to say I have the authority to make you a witch or not in, in my point from my point of view. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's very much about re recognizing the authority within oneself and also recognizing that you are a co-creator with the universe. I see a witch as someone who recognizes the sacredness of all of creation of all life as someone who sees that you know spirit is imminent in the world rather than transcendent. So it's something that spirit it is material reality like we are living in this living universe this mm -hmm. goddess universe or god i mean it's however like the metaphysics of of what i'm talking about are are, are complex but you know i see you know many witches believe in the goddess although i think the word belief itself is kind of problematic it, they don't believe in the goddess they participate in the goddess they touch the goddess, they see the goddess, they feel the goddess, they feel the goddess within them, they feel and see and participate and connect with the goddess that is all around them. It's not something that you believe in. It's like saying, do you believe in the chair? Do you believe in your house? Or do you believe in cats? It's like, well, yeah, they're fucking there. So yes, <laughs> I believe in that. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not like a it's not like a statement of faith that you sign on the dotted line like yes I will agree to all of these statements you know yeah exactly and I think that's one of the main you know differences as for instance like my understanding of certain sects of Christianity is that in order to be a Christian you have to sort of accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal savior and in within the context of witchcraft that that just doesn't really make sense yeah I mean it, it just wouldn't it just doesn't fit into the philosophy of witchcraft like you, you are the goddess. Yeah. You don't have to accept her. Like, she's everything. Mm -hmm. and, and you're constantly connecting with her. And if you disavow her and say, I disavow you, it doesn't 
matter because like you can't like she's there she's everywhere so like yeah. you can you can say that if you want it doesn't mean she like quote unquote stops loving you mm-hmm. or that you're gonna go to hell or something it just doesn't it doesn't really make sense within the framework of witchcraft but in terms of like the whole sort of ren fair angle which i think is really interesting and funny too one of the things I love about witchcraft and one of the reasons why I think it appeals to so many artists and creative people is because there is a great sense of sort of liturgy and performance and humor and, I mean, the aesthetics of witchcraft are, are really engaging. And I think people come to that in different ways. But yeah, it's a practice of the imagination and it gives ima- imagination a primacy within the metaphysical framework. So imagination is key and I think that people who like Ren Fairs, for instance also like to pretend you know to sort of play pretend so like to take themselves outside of the status quo and imagine what it might be like to live in a different framework and that in itself is magical mm-hmm. because magic is about decolonizing your mind and and recognizing that the way that we think that reality has to be is not necessarily the truth. Now, as far as like the aesthetics of Renfair and whether or not that's cool or nerdy, like that's a whole nother thing. And, you know, some witches are into that aesthetic and some witches are not. I mean, I like Renfair. I think they're a little expensive. I don't tend to go to them. I yeah. like, you know, my aesthetics run in a kind of different direction. And I'm, but I, I also think that it's really, Like, we are often told by sort of the patriarchal authorities who govern religion or politics that there's no room for play. There's no room for play in religion. There's no room for play in politics. There is no room for play in institutions like education. And I just am like, "Mm, no, wrong. Like, I don't, I, I don't agree. And I don't, I'm not going to capitulate to that rule. Like, witchcraft is about play and about pleasure and about um, imagination and it's a spirituality that is completely based on those things and doesn't see it as peripheral or as something that makes you sort of that's like outside of the real world that is the real world that's the world that we're creating by taking the agency of becoming witches and, and practicing witchcraft yeah yeah, thanks for that. And I, I didn't like I wasn't necessarily trying to like denigrate like the people who are into like like the more like Renfair or whatever, you know, like the sort sort of role playing elements of that. But I think I think what I was trying to get at a little bit is that like there are people who see that witchcraft is just like a silly make believe thing, you know, because mm. it's like all imaginary. And I and I just mm. want to read a quote of yours that I read from another interview that you did where you said the imagination is a portal to the spirit world. A lot of people say, oh, it's just your imagination. Well, it's not just your imagination. Everything, every human artifact, every building, every film, every novel, every app started in the human imagination. That's pretty powerful. Through ceremonial ritual, we jump through the portal of the imagination where we can enter this realm of spirit consciousness. We sort of rearrange the furniture in our minds so that, so that the feng shui flows a little bit more fluidly within our lives. Mm-hmm. And I really loved that. I loved what you said there because I think like our culture has like taught us that the imaginary and, and that the imagination is somehow not important or somehow s- silly or doesn't have any power. And I think what you're speaking to is like, yes, this is imaginary to some extent, but that's an incredibly powerful place to start from. Yeah. And also that the imaginary is real like that. I yes. mean, and, and that it's real because of the way that we participate in it. So, for instance, I think it is really funny that, for instance, somebody who, let's say, might be Christian or even if they're an atheist, but they're like political or whatever, might say, oh, you know, witchcraft is just a silly imaginary thing. Well, so is money. Like mm-hmm. money, like money is completely imaginary. It's it's an artifact that we've all created, and we all believe in and participate in. Maybe we do believe in it, or maybe we don't. But nevertheless, it's something that is imaginary. Like like dollar bills don't have any intrinsic value. It's only because we use our sort of collective imaginations to agree on that. Mm-hmm. Or for instance, like a king is a king because we we say so it's a function of language and perhaps a function of this imaginary thing that we call law but you know all of that is a product of the imagination so it's not fair or right 
I think, to say, oh, it's only the imagination when it's something that I don't like or I disagree with. Mm -hmm. But when it's something that I participate in or that is agreed on on a larger level, then it's real and then it's serious. And and I also want to say that with the caveat that lots of people have lots of theories and things that they participate in that kind of, you know, can seem really ridiculous. Like people who believe in, you know, the flat earth or, you know, all sort of, there's all sorts of sort of conspiracy theories and things. And, you know, we have to walk a fine line be- between saying like, the imagination is always necessarily valuable and real. And also, on the other hand, saying, but some things are more real than others. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm ready for some imagination in our social, in our society. You know what I mean? Like, like how are we going to change these systems if we don't break out of these sort of staid ideas that we have about the world? And I think even a lot of activists think that we have to work within the constructs that we've created already, like instead of creating new ones, you know? Um, And that's, I feel like that's a really huge problem because oftentimes we just, when we're working within these frameworks, we just reinscribe the same patriarchal, or I should say hierarchical, you know, sort of master oriented, like dominatory domination frameworks that we've always done. Mm. I think it's really interesting too that, you know, in Plato's Republic, he talks about, I, I think it's in the Republic where he talks about how the poet should be exiled. And we might say that the poets are also like functionaries of the imagination or priests of the imagination, priestesses. And why should they be exiled? Well, they, because that, because the imagination is so powerful that it will make people realize that things don't have to be done in the way that they're being done. And so they become extremely dangerous to the status quo. And, you know, when in in some ways, when I think of witches and the Inquisition and witches being burned and thinking like how vulnerable um, the women at, at the time were, on the other hand, I'm like, yeah, they are dangerous. We are dangerous because we see outside of the framework of patriarchal culture and we are working to dismantle it. So be afraid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, also like play with the, come play with us. <laughs> it reminds me of that headline of the Lindy West op-ed piece in the New York Times from last week that said, I love that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, I am a witch. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm hunting you. <laughs> yes, it is a witch hunt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I love that too. She's amazing. Some of what you're saying reminds me of this um, this article I read. I think it was just after the election um, by, uh, I think his name is George Lakoff. And he, he wrote about how, um, like, why so many evangelical Christians voted for Trump. And... Mm. Um, and I've been wondering about this too, since, since you were talking about growing up in a family that actually really regarded the goddess highly. And I mean, even speaking of a goddess is like so different than, than what I grew up in, which was like, you know, this, I mean, it's very patriarchal. It's like you Mm. have this father figure, you know, taking care of the world and you must answer to the father. And so in this article by George Lakoff, um, he talks about that, like, because we had this strong, you know, super masculine character in Trump, right? This like father, this angry father figure that we have to answer to. And if he's not pleased, then it's our fault. And, you know, and that's, he, the kind of, he's kind of this like drunken buffoonish father figure that we all have to tap dance around. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, but I just kind of thought of this like sort of different orientation to the world. Like, you know, if we're growing up with a certain uh, religious framework, then that starts to bleed into our our um, our governmental framework as well. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes, absolutely. But I mean, it's like feminism one hundred and one, right? The personal mm-hmm. is political. Like the mm-hmm. religions that you practice at home and the ideologies that they espouse influence the culture at large. So I feel like it is really important that we recognize the divine feminine and start to bring her back and start to, you know, visualize other ways of, um, you know, recognizing the sacred. And I also want to honor the work that has already been done, for instance, like by indigenous communities or other, or specifically by, um, religious practices of people of color or, um, colonized peoples 
who, you know, were already doing that, like, and who are still saying, wait, wait, like, what about this? Like, this is a model that's sustainable and more egalitarian, which is not to say always that, you know, every indigenous community is not patriarchal or whatever, because, because I don't think that we should sort of romanticize and glamorize you know, indigenous religions, but I also think that there are a lot of practices that, for instance, from, from Native Americans or from um, other other traditions where they are already doing that. Like, they're already, de- like, destabilizing. Mm-hmm. I often think about leadership um, and I'm inspired by, by Native American traditions where the idea of the, the chief or the leader of the community was one who suffered with the community. So... We wouldn't, so you wouldn't have, like, for instance, somebody calling themselves a leader and then, like, eating a banquet while Mm. all their people went hungry. And yet that's what we see in our culture, right? We have these, like, people who are quote-unquote leaders who are living high on the hog while all these other people suffer. And to me, that is not leadership. I think it's laughable that that is called leadership. That's called exploitation and oppression. That is not what a leader does. And I think envision, like envisioning what other forms of leadership there could be. Like I was talking about earlier with that sort of co-creative model and horizontal leadership so that we all lead together. And that's really important in terms of like checking balances of power, right? Like anyone who has power over other people is liable to be corrupted by it, myself included. Mm -hmm. Like we all need to have other equally as powerful people keeping us in check. Otherwise, there will be exploitation and suffering necessarily. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and we're seeing it right now. It's so much in, I mean, not just like the obvious stuff that's happening in Hollywood with like a lot of the obvious power imbalances and men being exposed for sexual assault and abuse, but We're seeing it in so many of our religious communities, like from the Catholic Church to like now it's starting to come out in Protestant churches and it's coming out in a lot of Buddhist communities, too, where there's like a strong sort of hierarchy around like a guru or a teacher where there's or like yoga, yoga. Yeah, it's it's happening all over where we're seeing that these structures of really and I and I appreciate that you brought in the word curiarchy, because I think that's that's a better way that doesn't make it just about men, but it's like, it's that system of power over, of domination that engenders that, that kind of, um, yeah, abusive power in, in every circumstance. Yeah. Because, you know, when I was a child, um, you know, in addition to practicing witchcraft or with my, my mother, um, and my family participated in the Unitarian church. And one of my really formative memories was, was that, you know, when I was like 12 or 13, one of the, the, the head minister of the church or the congregation, there was a big scandal where he, he was married and he was sleeping with women in the community who were kind of like vulnerable and had come to him for counsel. Mm. And it was so formative for me to watch the fallout from that and how, for instance, it forced people to take sides like against the women or to be on his side. It, it, it made the women feel like they were, that they had done something wrong to destabilize the community. And like, you know, Unitarians are, you know, very egalitarian and progressive. But even within that community, you know, the abuse of power is possible. So exactly as you were saying with the hierarchy, like that will necessarily happen anytime there is one person who is considered more powerful or more of a sort of savior than the other people. And that's why I think it's so important. I, I also think that's one of the reasons why so many people are responding to witchcraft right now, mm-hmm. because, you know, women are very mistrustful for good reason of systems of power and authority because we've been at the mercy of it so long. On the other hand, like, you know, what do they say? Like 60% of women in America voted for Trump. And that's, (laughs) yeah, I think it's 55%. Yeah. Which is crazy. (laughs) So insane. But I also think that it's like, you know, it's just such a sort of Stockholm syndrome of patriarchy where women think that they're going to be protected somehow if they side with the systems of oppression, which sadly is not true. Mm hmm. 
And I do want to correct just for a minute because I did remember oh. it's actually 55% of white women. Women overall did vote for Hillary. Yeah. But, like, but still, as a white woman, I'm like, what is wrong? Yes. <laughs> yes, that is a very disheartening. I mean, I guess because their allegiance to whiteness is more important to them than their allegiance to their gender. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Lots of internalized misogyny for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And lots of expressed um, white supremacy yeah. <laughs> makes yeah. for a really bad combo as we're now seeing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to go back to something you, you talked a little bit earlier about um, um, we've been talking about the idea of magic mm. and in, in witchcraft and um, talking about the power of the imagination. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to the need to, because my understanding is, and, and this is kind of the way I orient, and it's actually something like I've had to work through a lot myself because I'm a person who really loves being in the imagination. And I love to believe that like, if I can just dream it, it can come into being. Mm. But can you speak to um, the need for like, not just, not just shifting our imagination and being able to envision a different world, but what it looks like to actually put that into action and to make it real sort of like, in the grounded physical world? Yeah, so that's really important, right? So a lot of the time when we think about magic, we just think of that one sort of ritual or symbolic act that happens sort of within the container of the circle or calling in the quarters or calling in the spirits of the four directions, and then we do whatever our ceremonial working that um, that we feel drawn to do, and then that's it. That's the magical act. It's over, it's done, and then you're supposed to get the thing that you want or um, or not. It doesn't work. Um, but that's not really how I conceive of magic. I see magic as really an altered state of relationship to reality. And what I mean by that is you know, you're doing the magical working, you're doing the ceremony, and you're doing the ritual, but then you really have to bring that out into your life and practice and listen for the voice of the universe as it speaks back to you and helps you understand the ways that you're participating, you know, in blocking yourself and also to understand the ways that you are being blocked, maybe by forces that are larger and more powerful than you so it's a system of awareness and Mm -hmm. you you then have to you do the ceremonial working but then you have to go out and actually do the work in your life like you have to listen to what the ceremony is telling you listen to what the spirit is telling you and then go out and work to change it to seize it to to make the thing that you want to have happen happen and you know I have had so many extraordinary things happen to me as a result of my magical practice. You know, so many shifts, so many strange synchronicities, so much expansion in my life to really having the kind of life that I, that I want. And that's been a result of the magical work that I've done. On the other hand, I think it's important to also recognize, like, we don't always get everything that we want. And, um, you know, sometimes the reason is personal and sometimes it's, it's larger, it's, you know, it's social. But I feel like the practice of magic is about helping us find our power within that. And so it is about, for, for instance, like connecting to, to deities or, um, you know, building a system of tools that help you kind of cope with the challenges that you face. And those magical tools do help us. But, you know, our magic is not the only magic that's being done in the world. There's also larger political magic that's happening. And so it's really important, I think, also to remember that, you know, it's really important that we work together collaboratively with our magical skills and otherwise. Like, if we're just doing it alone and we're talking about, like, larger issues, that we, things that we want to see addressed then, you know, we're not going to get very far. And I think, you know, but, you know, I, I make my living as a witch, right? That's, that's the, my sole source of income. And a lot of people that I see and work with are often dealing with financial issues, you know, wanting new jobs or wanting new careers or wanting, I work with a lot of creative people, a lot of artists. So, you know, wanting new galleries or 
um, to sell their work or to sell their screenplay or to get an agent or something like that. And, you know, when we're dealing with that, you know, there are a lot of things that you can do to sort of open up the pathway and make um, a lot of magical workings that you can do to open up the pathway and expand the possibilities in your life. But you're also not working in a vacuum. And a lot of the problems that you have are larger social, systemic and economic problems that can't be solved by you alone. And I think that that's one of the main problems with things like you know, the secret or a lot of other sort of new age forms of spirituality that really place all the responsibility solely in the hands of the individual and thus also place blame solely in the hands of the individual. Like, oh, if you're not, if you're not wealthy, then it's because you're not, your magic's not working. And I think that is really irresponsible and extremely problematic because then it basically means that like, the billions of poor, oppressed, disenfranchised people on this planet are just not thinking properly. And it takes away the fact that there is someone, there is an active force oppressing them. And if we want to address those concerns, then we have to work together collectively as magicians and as witches in order to destabilize those structures. And so really magic is most importantly, that shift in perception that I was talking about, you know, about magic being sort of symbolic action that shifts your perce perception and going back to that idea of the sort of decolonization of the mind, m most importantly, magic is helping you see that all of the things that, that seem so real and that seem so necessarily true, like for instance, that you are not successful because um, you're just not talented or that you don't deserve to be, are not necessarily true or that hard work, um, you know, if you work hard, you, you get rewarded. That's the sort of belief that in our culture we're, we're um, is sort of drilled into us over and over again. So the American ideal of like pulling oneself up by their bootstraps. But as we can see, like, I don't know, I don't trust that Trump like has worked very hard. I mean, <laughs> harder than harder than other people. Like, I think he was handed a lot of things and, and you know, maybe he did do work in addition to that, but I don't, a lot of the things that we think are true are not necessarily true. And so I feel like magic gives us, empowers us to see the places that we can shift our own behavior, to call in our allies, to open up synchronicities, to recognize possibilities that we didn't know that we had before. But it's also something that we have to do collectively. Otherwise, we won't see the changes that we want. We might see them within our own lives, but we want to see them on a broader scale. Yeah. And how do you think we can start to like, you, you talked about it's not enough just to do this on your own. Like, how do you think people, how do you, how are you doing it? How do you see people in the witch and magical communities like actually coming together? And how do you see, how, where do you see maybe an opening for like more traditional activists to sort of like, to be able to partner in some of that? Um, well, I think, you know, this is all stuff that we're, you know, still working out. Like, for instance, when I was on Fox, it was about, you know, my participation in something called the Magical Resistance, which was, uh, I believe, developed by this guy, Michael M. Hughes, who kind of um, was the instigator of all of that. Um, but then I had done a lot of my own political workings and have been doing so for several years. And, you know, if the question is, like, how do we work collectively and magically, um, you know, I think it really it's really about sort of putting ourselves in the same spaces as one another. I think, you know, to sort of give a practical example, you know, a lot of the time when, um, like, I lead uh, monthly workshops called Magical Praxis, and Praxis itself is a political term, right, I think developed by Hannah Arendt, but maybe um, somebody else had talked about it before her but the idea is that it's sort of political theory put into practice and sort of thinking about magic as um as theory that we then implement and create in the world around us and so oftentimes what we do when we begin um a ceremony or a workshop is to you know call on the elemental spirits to to thank the the earth to thank the the elements, to thank the people who lived here before us, to thank our ancestors. And just by doing that, if we just think about like what that means on a sort of microcosmic level, is that we, st we start to broaden our perspective through just through doing that one simple act and remind ourselves that, we, oh, we, it's not just people here. Like we live on a planet. We 
all are working in collaboration. Like we need the water, we need the earth, we need, we, we have to thank the people who came before us and all the work that has been done that's been leading up to this time. So those kinds of ceremonial practices, I think are um, important and helpful, you know, when holding maybe activist meetings, but that not everybody was going to respond to that. So I don't know. I, I feel like for the people that do respond to that, it's just important to find your people and mm. then start collecting and organizing with people who have already been working and who already know how and mm. who are already doing it. And I'm, I'm doing that too. Like I certainly am not an expert and I'm trying to align myself with more and more people who actually know how to do this work. I feel like for me, part of the way that I'm contributing is to contribute my voice and to do things like this and to, to talk about this stuff publicly. Um, but I'm still learning more and more about like what that means to actually apply that politically. You know, like we, we have to change the laws and we have to have like real political power and economic power because that's the way the world works. And yet also we need to destabilize the fact that that is the way the world works. Mm-hmm. Like, so we have to kind of do both simultaneously and it's a tricky, hard, magical working. Like it's for advanced practitioners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's really that consciousness changing. Followed by action. Yeah. 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 Changing your consciousness and then changing your actions. Yeah. And, and, you know, changing the actions can be consciousness changing as well. You know what I mean? Like Absolutely. And that's the thing with magic is that oftentimes by changing your actions, by participating in the ceremony, it changes your consciousness. Mm-hmm. That's why we do ceremonies mm-hmm. because by doing it, you create the change that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. You're saying, I am powerful. I am doing this ceremony. And you're embodying what you're trying to create. And, exactly. and I think that there's something so um, like relational to what you're talking about, like changing, you know, if you're, if you're using elements of the earth in your ceremonies and rituals, you're going to have a different relationship to the earth than someone who's like, you know, not in touch, like literally in touch with the world around them, with the earth around them. Exactly. The, that's exactly right. Like doing these things, Working with the earth, working with water, calling in the goddess, for instance, just saying her name automatically starts shifting it. Like I saying, you know, victory to the goddess, I call her in, automatically starts doing the work that we want to do, which is just destabilize patriarchy. Just by saying those words, you are doing it. Now, there's a lot of other stuff we have to do as well, but that's a good start. It's so interesting. Um... I was just thinking about this. I I worked on a project last year. Um, It was the Trinity Institute with Trinity Church here in, um, in New York city. And, and every year they have a really big conference where um, they choose a different issue to talk about. And uh, so last year was water justice and it was a really powerful conference and, and really brilliant people and, and passionate people and compassionate people from all over the world who are working on, um, on water justice in all forms. And, and I was part of a project to, um, create an exhibit where, um, people could be, could have a a ritual with water. Like we had uh, all these different stations with a different water ritual from, um, a bunch of different religious traditions. And it was such a cool way to like actually be in relationship to the water, like come and dip your hands in the bowl of water and, and, you know, brush it on your head or whatever. Um, but what was so fascinating was that like people were so appreciative of it, but they were like afraid to come and like be in contact with the water. Like so many people would like, like peek in and be like, wow, this is so beautiful. This is so cool that this is here. Um, but they wouldn't come in. (laughs) Like, I mean, some people did, but you know, for the most part, people were just kind of watching. And, and I thought it was just so interesting because, and most of them were from other Christian churches, you know, and, and there's sort of this different, and, and this is not at all to like say that their activism is not coming from like a a whole place or anything like that. Cause these people are doing really, you know, impassioned work, but, but there was something like foreign, I think about like that embodied practice of like working with the element that you're, you're like devoting your life to, you know, and that is feeding your life, you know? Um, yeah, it is really foreign. I it's, you're totally right. That's disembodied practice. I mean, I think we're really trained a lot 
in our culture to be spectators mm-hmm. and not to see ourselves as participants, even though perhaps they are, you know, participating absolutely in other forms of activism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a million reasons why they might have been uncomfortable. Like, for instance, mm-hmm. like, I would also like in my rituals, especially in my public ceremonies, like I wouldn't like to incorporate a lot more movement. Mm-hmm. Like I really think it's really important to like get us uh, into our bodies, like back into the earth to colors, like back into the material world instead of constantly like working to sort of be in this sort of quote unquote higher realm. Um, I feel like that's how we got into this problem, you know, in the first place is this sort of constant longing for the other world instead of being here in this one. On the other hand, it's really hard when doing a public ritual to get people to move at all, to get them to stand up, to get them to hold their hand out, to get them to touch. Like people are very disembodied and they don't want to do that. And there's many other places in the world where people are are like, yes, let me dance, let me sing, let me like walk in a circle you know, let me um, light things on fire. Let me like dip my hands in the water. Let me, you know, swim across the Ganges. But here we're like, no, we are so uncomfortable in our bodies so often. So true. It's so funny because I was, I was leading um, sort of, I mean, it was in a very small group recently where um, I was supposed to lead a contemplative practice. And I was like, I need to do something embodied. And so I said, we're going to do a dance. And like, I I gave people instructions for like, okay, this is the dance we're going to do. And I think afterwards, I realized I was so anxious about them being comfortable with it because I know how hard it is to get people comfortable with it, that I think I actually put some of that onto the other people because people were a little uncomfortable with it. But afterwards, they were like, one guy was like, I really did not want to do that. He's like, but then I could, fe- I could feel, I could feel that it in my body. He started crying, you know? They always do that, right? We always <laughs> do that, myself included. Yeah. Like, whenever I go to a ceremony where they're like, okay, now stand up. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want to. And then you do it. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I'm so glad I did that. It totally changed everything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And maybe that's part of it, you know? I, I, I feel like... You know, with a lot of the stuff that's been talked about, I was just, I just wrote a post today about, um, you know, the sort of Me Too thing and um, men apologizing for, you know, maybe abuses that they've perpetrated. And and the idea is like, maybe we just have to be uncomfortable sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like if we really want to change things, maybe it's not always going to be comfortable. Yeah. We just interviewed someone talking about anti-racist doing anti-racist work and talking about how, yeah, for for white people especially, like we're just going to have to be willing to engage in places where we're going to be uncomfortable and it's it's not going to be easy and we're going to have to like be willing to mess up and be willing to just like try again and to try to do it better next time. And I think that, that that's, that's true kind of like with anything. Um, like we have such a, we have this idea in our, our culture, especially like that you go and you study and if you read enough and like learn enough, you can figure out how to do it so that when, then you go and do it and you can do it, just do it right the first yeah. time. And you never no. learn to do anything without being uncomfortable. No. You don't learn to ride a bike without falling off of it and scraping your knee. You have you know? to be bad at it mm-hmm. first. Yeah. yeah. And, and that is something that is in our culture, we do not like, like yeah. Yeah. nobody, I mean, maybe in no culture, but like, we certainly don't like to be bad at things or to experience discomfort. I also feel like a lot, you know, sort of the kind of history of the Western world has been organizing around making, you know, wealthy white men feel as comfortable as possible (laughs) in every circumstance. So if some, if one of them feels uncomfortable, we all kind of want to rush in and make sure that he doesn't experience an emotion that he doesn't like. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also true for white, white people in general, you know, that like the sort of white project has been to make sure that everybody else in the world is working to keep you know, the white paradigm, white people as comfortable as possible. And I mean, I just, I don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) Like, I just don't want that anymore. And I want to work to try and figure out a way to stop that. It's just And it's not even comfortable anymore. (laughs) It is not comfortable. (laughs) And also the thing is like the idea that like, we are not comfortable because our ancestors chose to 
do extraordinarily damaging things to other people. And now we're still dealing with the consequences of that. And and we're still doing it. Like, we're still participating yeah. in it. So. We're the products yeah. of the systems that they created. You right. know, like, yeah. We're living out those traumas. Yeah, we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so for anybody who's new to magic, you know, how would you recommend that they begin to uh, learn more, incorporate it a little bit more into their lives? You know, I love that you say that. And I love that it sort of follows on what we were just talking about before, because, you know, my initial impulse might be to just say, oh, well, you should read. But also, <laughs> you know, you should practice. Mm-hmm. You know, you should try it and see what happens. And, you know, I think a lot of the time people are like, oh, what if I do a magical working and I call up like some dead or demonic spirit that hurts me or something. And um, there's good news and bad news with that. The good news is, you know, I think you're powerful and you're going to be able to handle it. And the bad news is they're kind of already here and probably tormenting you already. (laughs) Like the ones that you think that you're going to call in are already with you. (laughs) So you're going to be figuring out how to banish them. Um, Also, Mm. it's important to like connect with maybe more experienced folks and, you know, start practicing with them. And also to really start to tune in and recognize the initiations that you already had, the magical life that you're already living. So for instance, like, who are your familiars? Like, are animals coming to you? Are animal spirits coming to you or trying to give you guidance? Are there symbols that you keep seeing? Um, research them, learn from them, ask them things. Um, you know, deities, like, are, are there deities that you resonate with? They're trying to come to you all the time. They're there all the time, and most of the time you just block them out. But if you call them, if you say, I'm ready, I want you to come, hold onto your hats, girl, because they are coming. They will come. <laughs> if you call them, they will come. So just, mm. you know, once you call them, pay attention, and you'll start noticing them, and then they will teach you, like, they will draw you. So, for instance, let's say you... You read a magazine and um, a a goddess appears to you, let's say, the goddess Kor or something, Persephone. And that really appeals to you. And then follow her trail and she'll start coming more and more. And then you'll see workshops that are being held about her or you'll meet someone who tells you about her. And and you have to start paying attention to that and recognizing, like, what is the goddess asking of you? Also, you know, it's important to remember they don't obey you. Like, so, the, you know, when spirit comes to you, it is not at your bidding. Like, you are working together. Mm. It's going gonna, it's gonna to give you information that's going to help expand your worldview. And, and, you know, initiation is something that requires something of you. It, it requires a death of some kind and that, you know, you do have to get rid of the old things. Like you will have to, like things, some things will crumble and it might be a messy experience, but it's so worth it because you gain all of this power. You gain an enchanted life. You gain the realm of magic. You gain seeing the world as a sacred, living, vital being that you are in dance with, that you are in love with, that you are collaborating with. And that she is there and she's with you all the time. And it's so exciting and beautiful. And so it's worth it to let some of your old self slough off, even though it can be sometimes uh, uncomfortable. But like we were saying, the discomfort is worth it in most cases. (laughs) I just love that. I love what you just said. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's a very beautiful invitation, I think, into a magical life. Mm Well, I think we're probably getting towards the end of our recording time, although I feel like there's so much more that I would love to ask you. I know. <laughs> I know. It's been so fun talking. Yeah, definitely. It's very inspiring to think about all the work that, you know, we are all doing together and all the listeners out there and the work that they're doing and what they're bringing, you know, in terms of like how to put magic into the movements that are happening, you know, putting magic into the activist circles that we were talking about and probably that a lot of your listeners are participating in, it's like, put it there yourself, you know, take the responsibility for creating that, like make it happen. Like we're all doing that together. And I'm so excited because I do feel like it is changing things. Like we're seeing it more and more percolating through the surface. More and more of us are doing this work and we just need to keep going. Mm-hmm. We're all leaders. Yes. We're all priestesses. We're all priestesses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, well, we like to um, end just by asking what is in nourishing or inspiring you right now. Um, this can be a recommendation uh, of a book or movie or, you know, anything that has um, been inspiring you lately. Hmm, what is inspiring me? Oh, so many things. I've been reading uh, some books by Janitra George, who oh, I love her. is an astrologer and talks about the moon and the dark moon and the, the need to go sort of within and underground and like regenerate. Um, and I'm very inspired by that. And um, I've also been reading the Tibetan book of the living and the dead, I think it's called. And that's really inspiring me. I've been very inspired by um, a lot of the work of, uh, you know, activists of color that I follow on uh, Facebook and the sort of courage that they're um, bringing to the realms of spirituality and, um, and politics and business and all of that. Gosh, I don't know. I, I wish I would have thought about that a little bit more beforehand of like the things that are really inspiring me. You know, I was recently introduced to the term hierarchy or curarchy. How do you say it? I think I say curiarchy because in in the Christian liturgy, you say curie eliaison, which is uh -huh. like Lord have mercy. Uh, so that's why, but me, I don't know, in academic circles, they might say hierarchy. I might totally be getting that wrong. Well, I'm, I'm very inspired by that term who, um, I first came, I, I first came across it by this, um, online activist, Alexis P. Morgan, who I follow on Facebook. And, and then I can't remember the name. I think it was, is it an Italian or an English uh, theologian who came up with the term? But I, I'm very inspired by this idea of overcoming the sort of, the sort of dominator model beyond just patriarchy. I'm very inspired by looking at that term and um, breaking it down and, and, and doing work to destabilize that sort of master dominator model. And anybody who's doing work like that, I'm really um, inspired by. Yeah. So I just looked it up real quick. It was in, it coined by Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza, and who is like a, uh, it looks like a, a Christian theologian mm -hmm. um, about feminist practices of biblical interpretation. So that's where it came from. <laughs> yeah. And it's so great and useful. I'm also really inspired by, um, there's these indigenous activists that, who I'm really interested in, uh, for instance, uh, Louise Allen Frank, who works with like food mm. and, um, and recognizing the ways that like, just by simply, um, changing the way that we eat, we actually can do a lot to, um, heal the world and, um, another indigenous activist, uh, Mariana Ferreria, who wrote this book called Mapping Space-Time in the Body. And she talks about the, the ways that ritual is used within indigenous practice to reframe the way that we see the world and time and material, materiality. So, yeah, those are my things, my jams right now. Thank you. Um, and what about you, Rebecca? Yeah, you know what? I realized I didn't really think about this too much. And so um, I'm just going to go off of what Amanda mentioned, Demetra George, who um, I got into her stuff, I think, through reading Chani Nicholas. And I have her book about asteroid goddesses. And I also have, have um, a recording where she talks about some, like, I it's like uncovering your soul's purpose, basically, um, through your chart. But I, I have to say that... Um, I was not someone who was like raised to believe in astrology. And even like when I, I had gotten into tarot and was doing lots of things, I still didn't really get astrology. Like, because I, I used to think I would just read those sun sign horoscopes, like in the newspaper or something. And I was like, well, I mean, maybe, but I don't really know. But it was really uh, maybe like a year, a year and a half ago when I started to really look at my birth chart. And when I got a natal chart reading for the first time that it really started to rock my world. And I was like, wait a minute, there is so much in this chart that makes so much sense and explains so much. And when I had my a reading done with somebody and she didn't know anything about me other than my birth information and was able to say things that resonated so deeply. I mean, she started telling me something about myself and I started crying because I was like, how did you know Aww. that? And so, um, I actually, um, one of the things I do 
is in addition to some, you know, I, I read tarot and I, I do aura readings for people, but I also do spiritual direction and I'm looking at maybe um, starting to really study astrology and, and learn to do natal charts and stuff because I think it's such a powerful tool for helping people understand their lives. And um, so, yeah, that's my recommendation is like, maybe you're listening to this and you always thought astrology was a bunch of bullshit, but I'm like, here to tell you, check it out, go into it a little bit more deeply. And I'll bet you find um, some things that really are deeply, um, deeply resonant with you. Mm. And Chelsea, what about you? What's inspiring or nourishing you right now? This is so funny because um, we're definitely all in the same same wavelength. Because I was actually going to say my horoscope from Johnny Nicholas today <laughs> was like, uh, or for this week, um, has really been sticking with me. And and uh, and and actually, I th- again on this same wavelength, um, uh, a lot of the themes um, from her horoscopes this week are about. Um, about sort of healing the past and, um, and doing that in, in our lives now and, and the effects that that will have now, you know, so just having some conversations around that and, and, and I've actually been experiencing this in my own life. So, um, so yeah, Johnny Nicholas. Yeah. <laughs> Love her. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get her on the yeah. show someday. Yeah. <laughs> that would be amazing. I'm tuned in for that show for yeah. sure. Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you so much, Amanda, for being with us. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun. I can't wait to tune into your other shows. To learn more about Amanda's work, you can go to oracleoflosangeles.com or find her on Instagram at Oracle of LA and Facebook as the Oracle of Los Angeles. We'll have links to her website, radio show, and uh, all of her social media and more of the things that we mentioned today in our show notes, which you can find at listentotherising.com. 